action is uh, much more long-lasting than money. Hello and welcome to Offscript by Hey Radio. My name is Josh Nesbitt and this week I'll be talking to Laura Kalbach from the Small Technology Foundation. We talk about a range of topics um, around using the web for social good. So we cover privacy, tracking, accessibility and all things surrounding that, including some topics that are being discussed a lot lately like COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter protests. So without further ado, here's the recording. So I actually met Laura at FFConf back in November of last year. Um, she did a fantastic talk on tracking and eight reasons why, you, what eight things you need to know about tracking, um, which you can probably talk about a bit more shortly. Um, but anyway, Laura is a fantastic designer based out of Cork. Um, so before uh, we kind of crack on with anything else, I'm just going to introduce, introduce Laura. So big welcome, Laura. Hello, and based out of Cork, but obviously you can hear from my accent, very much British. <laughs> very much British, which we'll get on to why you moved to Cork and why you've dotted around the world, I'm sure. Um, but before we get started, do you mind just giving a bit of an introduction to the Small Technology Foundation and a bit, uh, a bit I guess that'll kind of tell us why you moved to Cork <laughs> eventually. Yeah, well, the Small Technology Foundation, um, we've been called that for about the last year or so. Uh, prior to that, our UK name for our not-for-profit was Indie. And the point of small technology is that it's not big tech. And so it's all about building things that are personal and uh, technology that benefits human welfare rather than making money for big corporations. Yeah. So the, one of those trap lines is that you advocate uh, regulation for surveillance capitalism. What does that mean? Yeah, so amongst the things that we do, um, we kind of have three areas. Our main one is we want to build alternatives to existing mainstream technology. And yeah. one of the reasons why is because mainstream technology is riddled with surveillance capitalism. And surveillance capitalism is a term that was coined by Shoshana Zuboff um, that talks about how people track us, collect our data, and use that data. Uh, they monetize it. So um we talk a lot about how to effectively regulate that, um, which the EU and some states in the US are attempting to do to some degree. Um, whether it's effective, whether it's enforced enough is a different matter. We might go into that a bit later. Um, and we also just try to raise awareness about these issues, about privacy, about our rights on the web, about how to build rights respecting technology and convince other designers and developers to try to join us. Yeah, so one of the things that Small Technology does as well is uh, it's an investment into ethical alternatives. So not just um, some of the open source software that you provide as part of the foundation, but also um, publishing lots of advice around um, how we can make more ethical uh, decisions on the technology that we use. And yeah, because it can be quite difficult to know where to start. It can be... Ethical is quite an amorphous kind of term and it's very difficult to know whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. To some degree, we do have to think about um, what our intentions are. If our intentions are to spy on people and use their information, then clearly you were doing the wrong thing. Um, but if you're actually trying to go about actually building something with the right intentions, it can really help to know things like, 
oh well, what architecture do I need to use for this like should I build something that is centralized probably not should I build something that's decentralized something where people's data remains on their devices so that's much harder for both corporations and governments and hackers and all sorts of harmful potential people to get hold of it yeah and I guess as well there's 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 the decisions that we can't make directly so I remember as well when we met at FFConf which uh, as I said it's a a conference we met back in 2019 Uh, it's run by Remy and Julie Um, it's just the most awesome conference I think it's been going it's fabulous yeah, it's such a good conference based out of this amazing old uh, cinema or theatre, I think it is. Um, but it's just a really great conference. Loads of thought put into the day and making attendees just feel fantastic. Um, so definitely go if you can. But um, I remember also at that same event, I saw Suze Hinton give a really passionate plea um, about technology that we might not be aware is is a kind of wrongdoing of technology, I guess. So her example, I need to pull it up. Um, she said uh, reversed Im- reserved emergency service radio frequencies are being hijacked by amazon to transmit their own product data and i remember this because she she said it so passionately she was basically in tears on stage i felt moved to tears as well because she really cared that amazon this private company was hijacking this this radio wave this radio frequency that was reserved for emergency services and for and for public and hobbyist use um, do you remember that yeah, well, one of the reasons why I really care about what we do, it's not always because of me. It's not necessarily about how I'm affected by things. I'm a reasonably privileged person. It's about how the most vulnerable people might be affected by this. So another area I care about a lot is accessibility. And it's really important that we're building technology that people can use and that actually serves a broad area of people rather than technology that is just being built to make certain people very rich and everyone else struggles as a result of it and so it's really important that we do these things not just for us but for everyone so that point is quite an important one the 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 builders versus the consumers conversation um so yeah can you tell us a bit more about that and a small technology uh, foundation that, that you, you've got a tool called SiteJS, um, which is very much for the builders and to help the builders make more informed decisions around what they build possibly. Um, can you talk a bit more about that, please? So I think we have a duality in us as designers and developers because we're both people who create technology, but we're also people who use it. And it's quite funny because sometimes I notice that we tend to act very differently in those roles. So we would we might choose to use a particular browser on our uh, device for actually using the web, shopping, stuff like that ourselves. And then we might use a completely different browser if we're trying to build something because we like their dev tools or we like something else. We might um, decide that we're not going to, say, uh, in our personal lives, use Facebook. A lot of people nowadays have made the decision, oh, I'm not going to use Facebook anymore because Facebook its entire purpose is to track you and monetize you. And, uh, but actually you'll find those same people will embed Facebook on the websites that they use and they'll use Facebook services and they'll be loyal to Facebook technologies. And so we have this kind of duality inside us and we need to really think about us, like us as the people who use things when we're building things and think about the other people who are using what we build. And 
SiteJS is one of the things that we've been building in order to provide an alternative for people who want to make small personal websites, well, not even necessarily small websites, but websites that are for sort of one person, single tenant, as we call it. And it's just an easy way for people, because it's so easy to set up a social media um, like profile. It's so easy to start a blog on Medium. But all of those things, you're handing over the control to those platforms as soon as you do it. And really, a lot of us know that the web, its basic web technologies are very straightforward. Bit of HTML, bit of CSS, whack it on a server and you've got a website. But it's that whack it on a server bit that can be a little bit trickier. We, nowadays, we have to think about things like um, certificates, TLS certificates and the things that make browsing secure. And so with SiteJS, what we've done is we've made it so that you can deploy a secure website in seconds just based on either HTML, CSS, JavaScript, or you can also layer in dynamic functionality as well. And so we're trying to build tools that make it easier for developers to help the people that use what they build. So how do you see the decision-making process go for a developer that might be looking at, say, Next.js or, or another framework that maybe wraps up React or something like that? Why would they look at something like Site.js apart from the obvious things that you've just outlined? Why would they choose that over the hot new framework? Is that is that one of the challenges that you have with Site.js? I, it's really about your mindset. I think if you're the kind of developer who is going for the hot new framework as being your top priority, you're probably not the developer that we're aiming Site.js at because it, we've got to have better priorities in this industry. It's one of the biggest problems is that people just care about the new and they don't have any care for what are really fundamental rights such as privacy, such as um, a right to like speak free and accessibility and all of these things. We'd far rather just we value the developer experience over the experience of the people that use our technology, which is completely backwards. Like, if you think that way, why are you building for the web? <laughs> I yeah. don't understand it. Why are you building for a wider audience? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So another thing that just to jump out of the, the dev chat slightly, because one of the things that we mentioned when we were talking about um, builders versus consumers, um, there's also kind of the implicit side of things, which is the consent of people who are in your network who may not want to be a part of that network. Um, so one of the things that um, you mentioned on your site and, and in talks that you've done in the past is uh, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, um, and the advertising that you received um, that time um, when, you, when you had a bereavement. Uh, do you mind talking a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So five years ago, my mom died. And I think as people know, when you go through that kind of situation, or you've been through a similar situation, you don't want people to find out over social media. Uh, it's a horrible way to find out about something that's quite potentially shocking and upsetting like that. And so my family were all like, we're not going to share any of that on social media. Um, and then the day after I went on Facebook and up popped an advert for funeral directors. Now. I'm not someone who uses Facebook a lot. Back then, I, I barely used it. I had um, I used to get generic ads for women of a certain age. So I get ads for makeup and dresses and laundry and occasionally pregnancy tests and things like that. And 
So it really was jarring when I got this advert for a funeral director. So I go to my siblings and I say, hey, did any of you post about it anywhere on Facebook? And it turned out that one of my younger sisters had posted a message to her friend who lived in Australia on Facebook Messenger. And of course, Facebook knows that my sister and I are siblings. I don't even think that we have the whole family relationship thing put in there, but we're two people who have often spent time in the same location who have the same surname. I, yeah. It's a reasonable guess. And so Facebook used that information to show me that ad. And it really does make you think about how, in regardless of whether it's a traumatic time or not, the fact that they could use your information to manipulate you so easily and not even information that you yourself provided to them. One of the things you often hear is people say, oh, Facebook or Amazon must be listening through my microphone um, because all of these relevant ads to conversations I only had in person are showing up. And there's been a lot of research done into this. Occasionally, there are apps that are trying to listen or are listening. But a lot of the time, the reality is actually scarier. And the reality is that all of the information about you and around you the people you're talking to and what they're searching for on their devices, they know where you are, they know that you're together. Um, all of the other things that you're doing that might suggest that you'd be interested in a particular topic, a particular product, all of that is being collected together. And so it's actually very easy for them to make a guess for you based yeah. on that. Might be a good time to talk about funding models for the web. <laughs> so what are the... <laughs> yeah. So this is one of the big problems is that surveillance capitalism is the primary means of making money on the web. It's the way that most businesses make money. And part of that stems from the problem of venture capital. So I think most of us know about this whole startups system where a startup will build a basic product, they will get venture capital for it. They're invested in on the premise that the amount of money that is invested gets returned in a huge quantity. And sure, investors will bet on a few different organizations, a few different businesses um, to ensure that they get some kind of return. But basically what they're looking for is rapid growth and big returns in money. And the thing is, selling things on the web is quite complicated. Doing things on the anyone that's tried to build a sustainable business on the web knows that you don't make huge amounts of money in a very short period of time unless you're trying to sort of milk it for everything that it's worth. And the way that these organizations milk it, the way these big tech corporations milk it, is they track everything you're doing. And then they sell or they use most, probably more frequently, they use that information in order to become much better at targeting you. And in Shoshana Zuboff's book about surveillance capitalism, one of the things she speaks about is how this is eventually going to, what this is eventually going to end up being. So right now, they can use your current information to target you for particular things. But the greater information they have about you, the better they become at predicting your future behaviors and manipulating your future behaviors. I don't know if anyone was watching the most recent series of Westworld, but that essentially became what it was about. The idea that eventually multinational corporations will be able to predict and manipulate you to do things that are in their interest. This is already happening to some degree. It sounds 
completely wild. It doesn't sound, it sounds like sci-fi, but unfortunately, this is our reality now. They, uh, as Aral, my partner at Small Technology Foundation says, um, it's like they want lab rats to test things on. And what they do is they just take a copy of you from all of your information on the web, and they just make that copy into the lab rat instead. So I think for the for the millionth time in 2020, we've said that this feels like an episode of Black Mirror. Obviously, 2020 has <laughs> not been a good year for that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I guess what are our rights when using these platforms, though? So obviously, apart from just getting off them completely, not going on them in the first place, not giving them a fragment of the information that you would normally give them, what are our rights when when using platforms, not necessarily just Facebook and Twitter, but smaller platform? What 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 are our rights? Firstly, I have an issue with telling people not to use stuff. Um, I think it might seem strange coming from me saying that, but I really think it's a big problem in the industry that we blame the victim. And the organizations do it to us as well. These big corporations, they say, hey, you didn't read the terms of services, even though the terms of services are near on impossible to read. You agreed to it. Uh, Like, why are you hitting yourself? is their kind of attitude and a lot of people will also say that to you like if you're um you're trying to sort of be an activist on a platform or something people would be like oh why are you using twitter to try to tell people not to use twitter so much or use twitter alternative and the problem is that we're in a society that increasingly relies on these internet online connections we have kids at schools um who have their sort of school newsletter going out on Facebook. We have family members we're trying to keep in contact with over WhatsApp. Uh, We have jobs that rely on us having CVs on LinkedIn. So it's not our fault that the infrastructure of our society is now built upon these massive platforms. Uh, So I don't think it's fair to blame people um, for using these things. I do think we need to have some education and exercise some caution about what we share, things like Perhaps you don't want to be sharing your address, um, where you live online and things like that. That it should be obvious. Maybe you don't necessarily want to post naked photos of yourself that are supposed to be private, things like that. Um, I think, though, when we do use these platforms, we have to be aware that there's some legal rights, depending on which country, which jurisdiction you or the corporation is in. But really, we have no rights because we sign up to terms and conditions, regardless of whether we read them or not. And uh, they can choose whether we get to stay or go. Uh, it's like going into a uh, any, any private place of business. They can choose whether you stay or whether you go. You don't have a choice in that matter. And so it's the same with Twitter. I think when we see people that we hate getting banned on Twitter, it can be really easy to cheer that. But that's only because Twitter's rules are in our favor today. And if Twitter's rules aren't in our favour and uh, they decide that we're the ones that get kicked off, well, then we're not going to be so happy. And that's why it's really important that we can build alternatives that we can run ourselves where we get to decide what we say and what we do. And we can get to decide who we communicate with. We get to decide what the moderation is, what is abuse, all of these things for ourselves. Of course, Anything you post on the web is still subject to laws. Um, you still can't harass people. You can't threaten people and things like that. 
But if we have our own spaces, we can own and control our own information. So that censorship thing is a really important thing surrounding activism. So we know what our rights are on, well, we don't know what our rights are, but we, we kind of know what we can make better decisions possibly on some of these platforms. So with LinkedIn, as you said, that's quite a crucial part of maybe applying for a job. Um, some people primarily get jobs through LinkedIn, so they probably give them quite a lot of information about themselves. Um, the other day, Instagram asked me to upload a copy of my driver's license. Didn't quite feel like that was... <laughs> no. So, yeah. So... Yeah, they, they shouldn't. It's the same with the Facebook real name policy. The idea that in order to use Facebook, you have to use your real name. It's like they have no, they have the right to do that because it's their platform and to choose to do that. But they have no right to do that. They have no right to decide what your real name is. Um, particularly if you think about trans people, they yeah. they potentially have forms of ID that do not contain their identity on it. And so it's not fair to use that as a barrier to entry for things. Yeah, absolutely. So apart from just some of the stuff we talked about, how can you make better informed decisions about those platforms? So how would I know, for example, that apart from the social um, kind of, expectation of me having a LinkedIn profile how can I make better decisions about the platforms that I decide to use so how can I find out almost like an evilometer how can I find out exactly how bad a platform is and what they're doing with my data oh unfortunately there's no evilometer um, and also it's very difficult to trust the information that you find on the web because these massive companies spend a huge amount of money on good publicity uh, you think about all of the big corporations that provide anything that's free and open source, generally they're doing that uh, either because they've embedded tracking in it somehow, I'm looking at Google fonts there, um, or because they're getting really good publicity and loyalty out of doing it. Um, think of all the people who probably think that Facebook is disgusting, but they still love React. I mean, Facebook is getting good publicity out of the existence and use of React. Mm. and. I think it's part of our responsibility as people who build using technologies to have an understanding of what their funding model is. So what their funding model is will drive the majority of their decisions. So you have to look into how do they make money? That's quite a straightforward way to kind of, I, sometimes it will be obscured, sometimes it will be harder to make those connections, but generally it's a fairly simple answer to a question. And sometimes, though, these organizations, they, they have a have your cake and eat it, too, um, way of looking at things like Spotify, who charge you a subscription, but also track everything you're doing. So it's no guarantee, like newspapers that offer you a subscription to remove the ads, but they still track everything you're doing. Yeah. Uh, so it is no guarantee. Reading privacy policies does actually help to some degree as well, because um, particularly under EU law, they have to be fairly, it's not plain English or plain text, but they do have to describe what they're doing to some degree. So that could be quite useful for spotting red flags, uh, things like uh, your data is being shared with this and that and the other organizations. You're like, oh, what data? That data is being collected then, is it? All right, okay. <laughs> So like GDPR, for example, and, and this obviously brings up the point of analytics as well and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, widgets that we may include on our site that may may uh, mine data and harvest data that we weren't aware that was, that was happening. Um, how does GDPR come into all this? 
So the idea of GDPR is that it protects our data, possibly more than it protects us, but it um, it's supposed to have some guidelines on how data is used and shared and stored or what's even collected in the first place. The basic premise being that if data is not key to the functionality of your site, so you don't you if you go to a website looking up the weather in your area, it can be assumed that you are allowing the website to know what your area is. You may not expect it to know where your house is, but the area. And so you wouldn't necessarily need to ask for consent for that. If someone's signing up for a mailing list, um, they're signing up for a mailing list. You don't need to ask them for, for permission to add them to the mailing list. That's expected. Um, but other things that we often say are being used to improve your experience of the website or improve functionality, those things aren't actually integral to the functionality of the site. And I think that analytics is a really good example of that. We don't need analytics most of the time. We need some basic statistics on how many hits a site is getting, perhaps countries that um, where those hits are distributed, if you want to look about doing clever things with servers. Um, we might want to know which of our content is most popular, which of our content is least popular. Yeah. We don't need to know things about the people using our sites. They, why are we obsessed with this? It's uh, really strange that we, we collect things like gender, even though we can't really tell. Um, we collect things like age range, even though we can't really tell. And what we use that information for is, I know, to increase stereotypes and to make assumptions based on stereotypes. I think a lot of the time we're so obsessed with collecting data um, that we forget there's far better ways to improve the experiences of the things we build, partly talking to the people who use it <laughs> rather than making guesses about them. Yeah, I guess part of it's vanity and part of it's useful. So, um as you said, there are, there are correct reasons for gathering that data. So you might want to know what popular articles you're writing or something like that to help maybe decide what you write in the future or something like that. It's probably a terrible example. Yeah. But I saw that Net Yeah, it's a good example. Well, yeah, I guess Netlify, I don't know if you saw recently, they opened they up a new feature on the platform, which was server-side analytics. No embedding of analytics inside the actual sites that you host in Netlify themselves. Just turn it on and they can they can put some basic analytics on any site um, that aren't too intrusive to your privacy. I don't know if you saw that. It's quite a step in the right direction, though. It's a step in the right direction. Unfortunately, it's a step in the right direction if you're trying to avoid Google Analytics, for sure. Uh, the problem is that any platform that offers centralized analytics, so these analytics may be server-side, but Netlify still has them all. And I know that there are many nice people working for Netlify, but we don't want to replace Google with Netlify. We want an alternative to the way that we do things. So if we're self-hosting those analytics on a platform that is not Netlify, that would be a better move. And often one of the things that we have to do when we're trying to think about replacing technology and using better alternatives is understanding we're not going to get all of those services in one place. And actually getting all of those services in one place is often a problem because that is when those services are benefiting from collecting all of the data. Yeah. That might not be their intention right now. They may make their money in other ways, but it's a risk. 
And we know what investors are like. Investors will push people in the direction that they don't necessarily want to go in. And so decentralizing away from that would be better. What I would really recommend is there's a site called switching.software. And if you're looking for alternatives to different things, they have alternatives to things like Dropbox and analytics and things like that. That's a really good site if you're just looking for some quick ones and you don't have the time to really go into a lot of deep research for yourself. Okay, brilliant. I've noticed a few questions start to come in, so I'm just going to start to ask them okay. as we go, if that's all right. Go for it, yeah. So the first one is, it feels like I'm in too deep uh, using stuff like Facebook to sign up for services and sites. How do we change that realistically? Do we just go through everything and change the account information and draw a line under it? Or do we? is there a better way to, to rid our, our data that, from that platform? I know that you can do delete requests on certain platforms. I'm not sure how many of them honor those delete requests properly. I guess they mm. have to, but do they actually do a, a proper deep um, trawl of the data and get all of that out of Facebook, for example? I'm not sure if that happens. So what are the options when, when kind of deciding to come off a platform? Yeah, I'm sure that, so under, uh, I think it's under GDPR, it's under EU law for sure, that you are supposed to be able to request that your, your data is entirely deleted. Uh, but as you say, whether they actually do that and to what degree, whether they just delete the data that you inputted and not the information they inferred from that data, yeah. because there's a difference there. Like they can combine the data they get from you with data provided by like a big data broker. Interestingly, this week I learned Adobe big data broker. And um, so they could combine that information with information from another and have completely new and complex information about you that's nothing to do with what you originally shared with them but it helped give them access to it so that's not to say it's hopeless and that's not to say that you're in too deep because we can always stop and we can always find alternatives and I think also when we're thinking about our friends and our family and things like that we can always help them too and so I think slowly we can have a ripple effect of getting people away from dependence on these platforms. And also, even if we have shared a little bit of data with them, I've done it. I think that the important thing is that we take their power away. So the more we are actively using their platforms, the more power they have, the more power they have to manipulate our actions, the more power they have to try to convince us to do particular things, the more power they have in the future. If we try to move away from them, then they start to lose that power. Yeah. And so that's why it's important to look for alternatives. I say it's hard for anyone who doesn't have loads of time to do it all in one big go. So I just say little baby steps, like a little bit at a time is really important. Think about what would have the most positive impact for you or if you're building something for somebody else, what would have the most positive impact for the broadest number of people and take those actions first. And that that way we will eventually get there there aren't alternatives for everything yet either no. and so we have to acknowledge that sometimes it's an uphill struggle sometimes we do have to make the decision of would I be better off having a CV on LinkedIn would I be better off showing off my skills and having a CV on my personal website yeah. and just promoting that via LinkedIn rather than adding all of that stuff on there like how can we use those platforms rather than letting those platforms use us? 
Yeah, I guess it's tricky because when the social and economic expectation sometimes, so for example, I remember there was a point where on Facebook, if you weren't on Facebook and you didn't get the birthday uh, event invite, mm-hmm. you'd just miss it. Uh, I don't, it's probably an age thing for me, but that's moved to WhatsApp now. So, you know, WhatsApp is, is where that all's hap- that's all happening now. Um, and with LinkedIn, yep, totally. If you need to apply for a job, a presence there is important, it seems. Um, I guess the, the right but, to be forgotten. Go on, sorry. But, but that is where we can be the social pressure in those situations yeah. as well. We don't necessarily have to do what everyone else does. And actually, a lot of the time, you don't need everyone in the world to be on the same platform to get value from it. What you really need is, say, if you want to share photos of your kids, you want a a family group. So you just need to get your family using something that's safer. If you want to share something with your workplace, you just need your workplace to move to it. If you want to share something with your friends, you just need your friends to move. And so we can slowly get those social circles into those spaces. Um, Again, we can't expect everything to happen overnight or for everyone. But if we just break it down into smaller manageable amounts, we can get there. Yeah, I guess that right to be forgotten is also so related to a lot of people at the moment I've seen might have children. They might set up social media profiles for them from when they're born and start documenting everything. Um, So Instagram is a good example. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a platform for images. It's fine. It's not a social network like Facebook. Um, so they start documenting a lot of the the life on there, and then, uh, you know, when when that that child gets to an age where they can make a decision for themselves about whether they want to be on that platform or not, that right to be forgotten is even more important. Then, um, so yeah, uh, there's. But the, it all. Uh, but at that point, it may be. Um, too late because i think in terms of so clearview ai is this horrible corporation that develops facial recognition technology that's incredibly popular among police departments and one of the ways in which they developed their databases of faces was scraping social platforms so you could ask for your data to be deleted from there and the damage is already done this company did it albeit illegally and um so i think we do have to be cautious about what we share in the beginning and particularly if we're making those decisions on behalf of other people i think if you have kids and things like that it's really important for you to start thinking about how do we do this right from as early as possible uh, to so that they're not restricted in the future how do we use maybe instead of whatsapp we use signal or wire or like another app that has encrypted you can still have groups of people on there you're just sharing it on something that's private. It's no more inconvenient than using WhatsApp. So what about hardware-specific services like, for example, Apple Photos, iCloud Photos, um, Google Photos, all things that are tied into the devices that we use every day? Is that any better or any worse? Or If it's Google, it's worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Apple are not perfect or great by any means. Um, and also not affordable for a lot of people however apple do are currently trying to differentiate themselves on privacy with google as their competitor so things like icloud and stuff is encrypted so uh, you can have things on there and people can't access them there are a lot of issues um, with law enforcement trying to get into iphones and apple wouldn't let them do it they would not provide them with a means to do it And I think that that is important. 
I don't necessarily think they can be trusted. I don't necessarily think that they will have that same agenda forever. But um, I'd say if you're comparing the two, then you're probably a bit better off using Apple stuff. But yeah, it is very difficult when these things are embedded into our operating systems. And yeah. um, it's like people keep asking me, what's the best browser to use? And the answer is there is no perfect browser. There's no browser that is great. And it's particularly difficult. Like for us, we know technology. We can pick things. We can even run things on the command line potentially or something like that. But that's not an option for a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have the knowledge. They have the time. They don't have the money. Um, one of the reasons why we can't blame them for using their easy solutions. And that's why it's really important for us to build things that are easy for everybody to use, that aren't just nerd tools for nerds. Yeah. Because if you want to protect your privacy and you're a nerd, you've got some time, it's reasonably straightforward. But for anybody else, it's not. So there's not a question, but a, a statement really by Matthew Shields here, which is, we are so used to receiving things for free. And that's very true. And I remember there yeah. was, I think it was called Hello, that social media platform that spun up oh, a few yeah. years ago. I don't know if it's still around or not. Um, but I think that was a paid platform to try and uh, work around a lot of the problems. And I say work around, not solve um, some of the problems that bigger social media um, giants are, are falling into. So what do you think about pla platforms that are maybe paid? Paid is kind of an illusion that you're getting more privacy, I think, sometimes. I don't know if that's necessarily... So, or hopefully a, a better funding model to mean that they don't have to turn to some of the darker, um, the darker patterns to, to make money. So what do you think of those yeah. kind of things? We need sustainable funding models. So we need companies who want to build technology to understand that you don't want to be the next Facebook. You don't want to be the next Google because you don't get to where they are by doing good things. Yeah. Um, but it, we live in a capitalist society. It's okay for you to want to make enough money to pay your rent and employ people and things like that. Yeah. And so we need to bear this in mind when we're building technology. I think as the people who create things, we also need to be willing to pay for stuff. I mean, if we're getting paid, why shouldn't we pay for things that we use? I was horrified last week to find all this uh, hey email service that's come about by the people that make Basecamp. A lot of people complaining and saying they're not going to move from Gmail uh, to something like hey um, because of the price of it. I think it's something like $99 for a year. Yeah. And I was thinking, these are people who have big salaries from big corporations and they're not willing to pay for email? Yeah. It's, uh, it's unbelievable to me. We have to think about what this free means. And email is one of the easiest things to make a good choice about. There are a lot of alternative email providers who are good, who are small, who are independent. Yeah. And it's not a huge amount of money. There's really no excuse for using email. And also anyone who uses email, all of your contacts, are also stuck using Gmail because you are because you're sharing their information with Gmail too. Yeah, the, the Hey Email provider is an interesting one because they claim to fix a lot of the uh, the tracking issues that you have in email. Obviously, the the price tag is enough, hopefully, for them to not have to resort to other 
other things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how they get on and definitely all the screening stuff. So you can only get email from people you want. It is it's centric around privacy. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. But they have they do have a good track record of building with Basecamp a sustainable organization. And one of the ways they've done that is not grow massive. They don't have a huge number of employees. So yeah they can afford to give their employees a good life as well. And I think in the system in which we exist, that's pretty good going. Yeah, absolutely. They also happen to have bagged a rather good domain name as well, which is uh, slightly frustrating, yeah. but we'll, we'll ignore that I one. I think it, ha- it helps to be well connected in those situations <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, so there's a question from Richard Shackleton, actually, which is the problem comes when you need to tell a client to avoid using certain services. How do you approach those conversations? How do you work around that kind of stuff? You have to be the expert. Like You're hired because you know what you're doing. Your client, it's very unlikely that your client will start telling you, oh, you should be writing in SAS rather than um, vanilla CSS. Like, they're not going to get involved in that level. So you need to be willing to put your foot down and be the gatekeeper um, for other decisions as well. And part of that is being clear in expressing what the downsides are for these things. I mean, it's very difficult with things like Google, like AMP, for example, for publishers, it's a racket. They they really are holding people's search results ransom with things like AMP, and it's not right. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. And I think when you go into arguing against something like that, you do need to have a marketing strategy behind you. So you can't just expect to say, don't do that. You've got to have an alternative to offer to people as well. Yeah. Okay. There's a, just another question as well. You talked a bit um, about developers and responsibility to developers to, to help make some better decisions about what we build our software with. There's a question from OnDevs, which is, we as devs and designers are the ones to take care of a GPR, making sure that users don't get harmed by what we build. So the question there is, is the responsibility with the developers, is it, is it our responsibility solely to solve that problem? No, it's your responsibility to understand what you're implementing and the impact of it. But it is probably the responsibility of your boss because it's the responsibility. It all comes down to the business model, the funding model. If that business model is to collect masses of data and do whatever with it, then it's going to be very difficult for you to implement some magical solution that makes that okay by GDPR. Yeah. Uh, you're probably going to end up with a nice big consent dialogue with about a million little switches on it. It's going to be a horrible experience for people. And uh, so, but I do think ultimately, if we have greater knowledge about tracking, because we do, we understand how things like tracking work. We understand how cookies work. We understand how browser fingerprinting works. I mean, if you don't, you should probably get informed about it. Um, so we can use that information to inform those people about those things, to inform them about these risks. We also have to acknowledge that sometimes we're not going to make change from the inside. Yeah. It's very popular to talk about how people are going in to valiantly change these big organizations from the inside. We're not going to do that. Actually, you can make things worse because you can make it appear like an organization or a big corporation is 
making it better and that they actually care when they don't. So at worst, you're actually providing them with some nice PR that makes them look wonderful. And that's going to be quite miserable for you eventually as well, when you feel like you can't affect any change. Yeah. Okay. So on the subject of tracking there, so got a a question from Marco uh, Vidonis. And it's, I'm curious, what do you think about the login with Apple option? They surely advertise their commitment to privacy, but do we give them a lot of data? And tying into that, there's another question from Adam, which is what do you think about Apple's recent moves to sell their services with embedded privacy? For example, signing with Apple, which makes emails untrackable and a new Safari going to report what trackers it blocked. I don't understand why we're so obsessed with using these single sign-ons, honestly. it's supposed to be like a better experience, but is it? Is logins and passwords like that a really big problem? Yeah. Uh, I'm not in, I think we're trying to solve the wrong problems. And I think that one of the reasons why things like like these sign-ons and, and authentication is so like widely used and like popular is because some big corporations who had an interest in being embedded on your website decided to tell you that that's what you should be doing. Like we look at things like capture, recapture. It's a terrifying bit of technology and so many sites use it. And essentially Google is saying, hey, we can guarantee you're not getting any um, bots as inconvenient as some bots might be. And all you have to do is embed us in everything that you have on your website. And this new invisible type of recapture as well. They want to be embedded in every single interaction on every page on your website. Like, that's not cool. And we shouldn't be doing this. I think as well, John's just raised um, one click is better than two click, that culture for logins. I think maybe developers uh, and, and product people alike really just think that it might be a better experience for the user you know one click is a quicker route to logging in and um, they've already got data with that that provider great let's get them logged in and um, so i guess yeah oh i mean one click is better than two clicks but not sharing my data with google is far better than sharing my data with google hey what's your priority here <laughs> <laughs> okay we're going to come back to some questions shortly but um COVID-19 tracking I want to talk about. So that's one of the topics that are uh, being discussed quite a lot at the moment, um, particularly with the UK's incredible failure, to be honest, to deliver anything at all. Um, so we were originally going to pre- deliver our own application. That's fallen on its, um, on its face. And uh, I think we're now looking at Apple and Google's, but there's like a hybrid decision they've made to use some of that technology. Um, Germany have done a pretty good job of it from what I understand. Um, what are the costs of tracking apps like this? Obviously, we're, we're primarily trying to use technology to slow a pandemic. That is what these apps promise. Is that the reality? Yeah. I think that's one of the problems of our age is that we have somehow been convinced, maybe by Silicon Valley, that if you throw enough technology at a problem, it's going to solve it. And a lot of the problems that they're trying to solve with the tracking apps would actually, they don't have any effect unless you have effective testing in place. If you have, if you don't have testing, if you don't have rapid testing, the app does nothing except track people. And so that was the reason why the NHS app was different from Apple and Google's solution 
was the NHS wanted to have a greater ability to track people and to store their information centrally. So theirs was a centralised solution. Uh, reading a question from Richard Shackleton, which was just thoughts on services like Auth0, which is a, a service that's like a centralised or provider over maybe one like from Apple or Google, whoever else. What are your thoughts uh, on so more centralised providers? I don't really understand the problem that the centralised providers are trying to solve. So I think that some of the reasons behind having centralised options are things like oh, we need to check whether people are trolling the app. Uh, we need to check whether there are fraudulent claims or people are misdiagnosing themselves. Well, all of these things can be solved through testing. And very quickly, you can check whether it's a problem by testing. Yeah. And so I think the wider risk is that this information can be used by governments to track people and that's one of the things that's particularly worrying about the NHS solution is that the current government and their reputation with their um, leave campaign in uh, for Brexit yeah. they don't exactly have a good reputation when it comes to trying to track and manipulate people via the internet and so it, perhaps they're not the ones to be trusted with tracking things. Yeah. We never got around to why you moved, did we? Oh, yeah. Well, so that is a, it's kind of a, a long story, but uh, we initially moved when uh, the Conservative government were elected and we planned to move, and that was many years ago now. And because we knew that the things that they were trying to do, like leaving the EU, but also uh, things like the um, mass surveillance bill, that they wanted to introduce, which they did introduce under Theresa May as the Home Secretary. And the idea that they have very... I, the UK is one of the most surveilled countries in the world. Like we like to look at China and go, oh, look at how awful their government is and how tracked people are. Um, but the UK has some of the most CCTV of any country. It has some of the most restrictions in terms of data surveillance. Like, it is not a good country to live in. and as people who wanted to work in building rights respecting technology we didn't want to be on the wrong side of a legal challenge we're just a tiny little team yeah. so we went about trying to find somewhere in europe that might be better which to some degree is a pipe dream because really the grass is always greener no country in europe is really better they can appear better yeah. from the outside and so really we ended up in ireland because as a couple who are, one has a British citizenship and one has a EU citizenship, uh, Ireland is one country we can actually live in together without any qualifications. <laughs> okay. So, and it's just, great here as well. <laughs> it does look amazing. I saw, I saw where the, the spot you live in just on the harbour looks absolutely amazing. So. It's, a, it's a very nice place to live. Um, so I'm aware we are running out of time a bit. I'm going to run over a little bit because I think we've got a few four more things to um, to discuss, if that's okay with you. Um, yeah. But so COVID-19, we got cut off a little bit. I think we discussed yeah. a lot of the things around the tracking and, and all that. So I just want to move on to um, kind of activism and technology in, in, in activism. So there was a recent uh, article um it was on the verge i don't know if you saw it it was philadelphia protester was protest uh, was arrested after arson 
Um, and she was identified on social media from her LinkedIn, her Etsy, and a, a few other posts and donations she'd made around the internet. So they'd drawn this profile um, of her and managed to locate and arrest her um, because someone had photographed her um, setting fire to a police car. Um, and it was quite incriminating, yeah. all, all the social media that surrounded that. Um, what are your thoughts on stuff like that, you know, in terms of, you know, that, that Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, instances, we've got so many examples with, with yeah. recent news. Well, I think the first thing is really important to point out is that Black people and people who are ethnic minorities, particularly in the UK, are disproportionately targeted and affected by unfair tracking, yeah. by invasions of privacy and things like that so it is really important that we try to build technology that is anti-racist by making sure that it does respect people's rights and i think one of the things that we'll find with protests is a lot of organizers and guidelines will tell you to try not to wear identifying clothing to try to cover um your face cover tattoos and things like that if you can if your rights are not going to be upheld while you're yeah. protesting they also say that you shouldn't share identifying photos of other people at protests as well. There's very little we can do if um, police are going to go around tracking things that um, people are sharing willingly on yeah. platforms. Uh, we also have to bear in mind things like don't use Uber to go to a protest because they're tracking all of your information and your location and they will very willingly hand that over. Yeah. So using public transport or your own transportation to get to protests is incredibly important. And also when we're organising to use technology that is not tracking us, that can't incriminate us. And I think sometimes it's very difficult for us in the UK. We tend to think, particularly if we're white, that we are unlikely to get in trouble for protesting. But we forget there were people that were pre-arrested before that were going to protest at the royal wedding and things yeah. like that. So uh, these things do happen. And also that we may not be part of a community that is targeted in the worst way. And so it's important that we communicate via um, apps that don't share our locations with platforms. So um, even though WhatsApp, you can have encrypted messages, you have to bear in mind that often the metadata of your messages, who you're messaging, things like that is not encrypted. Yeah. So that's not a safe one. We should look at alternatives like Signal or Wire or something like that. Mm. Um, and also when we're providing information about protests, when we're trying to organize them, why aren't we using ordinary websites? Ordinary websites are much harder to censor than a yeah. Facebook group or an Instagram account uh, or a Twitter account. Um, we have a choice about what we share on those. In fact, one of the um, use cases that Errol has been testing with Site.js is the idea that you could run a website off a server that you're running in your pocket. Yes. So you could have a mesh like Wi-Fi network that anyone at a protest could connect to. And that way you could circumvent any kind of censorship in that way. And so the ability to be able to create websites very quickly and share information in that way, where people can visit your website and know that their data is not being shared or tracked yeah. with a platform that's willing to hand it over is incredibly important. 
The interesting challenge there comes from we as developers know how to do that, how to deploy those things on onto servers or whatever. I guess the, the challenge is people who want to support activism like that that might not be empowered to, to do those things or might not be able to, which is why these services crop up, right? The reason for these services that are the one-click websites, they're all this and that to make it a lot easier to, to get started. Um, it's an interesting point because I imagine a lot of... Go on, sorry. Yeah, oh, it's also a really good way for people who may not feel like they're at the they're at the forefront of the communities like that are being activists in this instance so you may want to try to be a good ally mm. and one of the ways you could probably do that is by offering your technical expertise yeah. um, in order to help make sure that people are safer absolutely um i know there's, there's a lot of tweets um, around the start of the black lives matters protests around not only donating but donating your time to donate your your skills to support these efforts um, is probably one of the more powerful things that we can do yeah um, so. action is uh, much more long-lasting than money <laughs> yeah so moving on quickly because i'm aware of time um smart cities i just wanted to really touch on smart cities quickly because um there's a lot of new technologies that are popping up to make cities smarter um to make big connected networks of things like street lights and um, all tied into CCTV, I guess. Uh, I saw a thing recently around street lights that um, the behavior of those street lights would be modified based on what was seeming like antisocial behavior in the area or things like that. Um, what are your thoughts on smart cities and the networks of data that they're going to start collecting? One thing is there's nothing wrong with having technology in cities to make them better. It's that who has ownership and control of that technology. So is it smart cities or is it smart citizens? Like it's if it's information about us that's being shared, that's a bad thing. If it's information that's being shared about, oh, how many people are on this street? Mm. Um, so when do we need to have the light on? That's fairly innocuous. If it's who is on this street yeah. and whether we need to have the light on, that is a very different matter. And so what we need to make sure is that we are talking to the people who run our cities and telling them that they need to respect our rights around these issues. We need to help cities build technology that respects people's rights. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so just want to touch very quickly on the rights respecting tech and um, the characteristics of technology that describe that tech. So you mentioned easy to use, personal, private by default, share alike, peer-to-peer, -peer. Um, the list goes on, obviously. Which of those should we pay the most attention to? Peer-to-peer -peer feels like maybe one of the more important ones based on the ownership of data and the location of data. What? Yeah they're all very important like they're they're all there because they're all in themselves very important things but they may have different impacts in different areas and um, so example one of the principles is making things easy to use like i was saying earlier we need tools for everyone we need things that everyone can use so that having privacy is not the preserve of rich people or nerdy people and so for peer-to-peer and that's an incredibly important architectural point. So decentralization is important because it's taking the ownership and control away from one central place of power. And peer to peer is like an extension of that that is even like there's an even better way of doing it because it's saying, 
hey, we are just communicating individual to individual and no one can possibly get a connection in between that. No one can possibly interfere with that. Yeah. I've just noticed a, a, a comment pop up from Chris Townsend, which is the Uber issue is fairly terrifying. The idea being that you could be refused an Uber based on the fact that you've previously been to demonstrations in the past is grimacing. Oh, and the fact that plenty of Uber drivers are already refusing entry to people because they're disabled. They, yeah. I think there's a reason why we shouldn't be letting private corporations run transportation. <laughs> and Matthew Shields has just mentioned um, such a good point. Free Wi-Fi hotspots uh, hot on digital advert stands, things like that. Yeah, and cities, I guess, but not in the right yeah, way. And this is where education is really important, understanding that we shouldn't just be joining any old wonderful free Wi-Fi hotspot. That is not a gift. It, <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> it is a trap. Um okay. I think that's about it, actually. I think we've we've run over a little bit, but um I think that's that's touching on most of the topics that we wanted to chat about. And uh, it looks like we cover most of the questions as well. But if there is any of the questions that you have, please ping Laura on Twitter uh, or in the Slack channel that we have. Or on Mastodon, which is a really great Twitter alternative. Mastodon.laurakelbag.com. You can find me on there. <laughs> there you go. Um, but the most direct way as well is, is through Slack. Laura uh, has been in the Slack channel today. So um, not that I'm going to suggest that Laura's going to hang around for hours to answer all your questions because that's not the case. Um, but yeah, this has been a really fun chat. And uh, is there anything else you want to mention before we before we kind of end? Well, I, if you are interested in what we do, you can check out everything from Small Technology Foundation at small-tech.org. And we also on there, we have, it's like a patronage um, where people can help us by donating or by um, providing us with a patronage for our work to help us keep going as well. Yeah, I mean, you've taken the end, the closing notes off my hands, really. I was just going to say. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, yeah, if you want to fund the small uh, the small tech foundation, you can you can fund them. Um, it's it's a really fantastic organisation. There's loads of really good uh, resources on that site as well. Um, to talk a lot about the the pillars and inclusivity, which we barely even talked about, which I'm upset about. Um, but we have run out of time. But yeah, there's there's so much information on there, and I'm sure on on the Twitter and Mastodon and, and and wherever else, Laura would be happy to answer any questions that you might have around this Absolutely. topic. That was me chatting to Laura Kalbag from the Small Technology Foundation. As always, check the website or the podcast for more episodes and keep your eyes peeled on the socials for the next episode. Thanks and goodbye.